Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. This program is being broadcast on Lagba Omer, the 33rd day of the counting of the Omer. Traditionally, the counting of the Omer was a ritual that was performed in the temple in the seven-week period between the holiday of Passover and the holiday of Shavuot. Passover commemorates the liberation of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, and Shavuot commemorates the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. Our history lays that in the insurrection of the Jewish people against the Roman occupation, thousands of students of Rabbi Akiva died. History is not quite clear about how they died, but according to modern-day historians, they, they died in the fight against the Romans. At any rate, regardless of the actual details of history, tradition tells us the loss of life ceased on the 33rd day of the counting of the Omer, so it's celebrated in a way that's different than any other Jewish holiday or holiday. Traditionally, people go out into nature and have picnics and light bonfires. Here in Israel, for weeks, we see kids gathering wood for the traditional bonfires. I once flew into Israel on the night of Lagba Omer, and there was actually a mist of smoke over the country from all the bonfires. It's celebrated by all segments of Israeli society, and it primarily involves kids, so it's become, in my estimation, a sign of unity that is so badly needed in the society here. So although it's not a holiday in the usual sense of the word, or a holy day, it is important because it generates and celebrates unity, which is so important. And that is something that we need very much in these dangerous days. So happy Lagva Omer to everybody. And let's hope we all have a good year and celebrate Lagva Omer safely a year from now. I'll be back after the break. The return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel was prophesied in the Bible thousands of years ago and is coming true today. Shalom. Join me, Josh Wander, on Israel Unplugged. Listen in as we delve into the spiritual and physical aspects of the Jewish return to Zion. We'll discuss the biblically mandated, historic, and of course practical understandings of this incredible transition from exile to redemption. That's Israel Unplugged, every Monday on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're 
you're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few words about how Israel is singled out and treated differently than any other country in the world. No society or country is beyond rational criticism, and that includes Israel. Israel's society and Israel's media, Israel's domestic politics, are examples of its openness and critical introspection. However, oddly as it may seem, as a member of the world community, Israel has never benefited from the equality to which every other state in the world is entitled. Since its establishment in 1948, and acceptance into the United Nations as a member of the international community, Israel has been denied one of the basic principles guaranteed to all states as set out in the opening articles of the Charter of the United Nations, and that is the principle of sovereign equality. This discrimination, which continues to the present day, takes interesting forms like exclusion from United Nations regional groupings, thus preventing Israel's right to submit its candidacy and its candidates to main UN organs, such as the Security Council or the International Court of Justice. Since this has become an accepted norm of United Nations practice for over 70 years, it is no wonder that the fixation for singling out Israel appears to be accepted internationally. It is this that fuels the incessant fixation and this, the obsession with Israel, including those political and media sources, domestic and international, entertaining a fixed agenda hostile to Israel's existence and engaged in delegitimizing Israel in international areas. Such a chorus of obsessed critics includes progressive and liberal elements within Western Jewish and Gentile communities. They have a sad penchant for self-hatred and a concomitant need for ingratiating themselves within their societies with Israel being used as a convenient target. Another obvious source of automatic criticism has existed from time immemorial and has permeated international society. That source is called anti-Semitism. A major thrust of the anti-Israel fixation emanates from Palestinian elements that seek to delegitimize Israel in the eyes of the international community. This is quite evident in the abuse and manipulation of respected international bodies, such as the International Criminal Court, the UN Human Rights Council, and the UN Educational and Cultural Agency, UNESCO. As is widely known, the establishment of the ICC, the International Criminal Court, was inspired actually 
by the horrors of the Holocaust and other recent instances of great grave atrocities and crimes that are of concern to the international community. And all this was done with the purpose of ensuring that perpetrators would be punished. Jewish and Israeli international lawyers were among those who envisioned and worked toward the creation of such a court. It seemed obvious to them, particularly after the Second World War. In the meantime, the Palestinians have attempted to hijack this court and turn it into their own backyard Israel bashing tribunal abusing and undermining the founding statute of that organization. Similarly, with the hijacking and irreverent abuse of the UN's Human Rights Council, whose declared mission is to promote and protect human rights around the world. Even the ostensibly professional UNESCO organization, which was established to promote and I quote, to promote collaboration among the nations through education, science, and culture in order to further universal respect for justice, for the rule of law, and for the human rights and fundamental freedoms, unquote. This has been similarly hijacked, preferring to vent an obsession with Israel through politically inspired resolutions denying the linkage of the Jewish people to its historic holy sites in the Holy Land. Interesting, for example, in the ongoing Russian-Ukraine war, Palestinians voice concern that the international community is overly immersed in the Russia-Ukraine war rather than spending its time doing things about Israel. Their expressions of of indignation seek to equate the low-intensity Israeli-Palestinian dispute with the high-intensity open warfare conducted by Russia against Ukraine, including massive bombardment of civilians, use of, of illegal weaponry, and millions of refugees. So this disproportionate attempt to invent a false equation is misplaced and also malicious. It's indicative of the blindness caused by the obsession to criticize Israel as an absolute obsession. By the way, such obsession has also been voiced by a fringe American anti-Zionist organization called Jewish Voice for Peace, claiming, and I quote, claiming that the Israeli government is settling Jewish-Ukrainian refugees on land it illegally occupies and prevents 7 million Palestinian refugees from returning to, unquote. In other words, they're, they're tying the two together. Israel's doing a wonderful thing. They're bringing Jewish-Ukrainian refugees to Israel, and this this Jewish voice for peace claims that they're bringing these Ukrainian Jews to Israel so they can fill up the areas that Israel stole from the Arabs. That's what this Jewish group is saying. And similarly, there's a guy named Peter Beinart. He's an American Jewish pro-Palestinian propagandist, 
an apologist. Uh, he said there's a, there was a left-wing magazine, a Jewish magazine called Jewish Currents, and he wrote the following. Ukrainians, a mostly white and Christian people, bat battling an American foe, are, views that are viewed as fully human and thus entitled to fight for their freedom. Palestinians, a mostly non-white and non-Christian people battling an American ally, are not. Unquote. Similarly, malicious comparisons have been echoed by former Human Rights Watch director, woman named Sarah Lee Whitson, by the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, woman Lara, Lara Freeman, a Jewish woman, the president of the Arab American Institute in Washington, and British Labor MP Julie Elliott. In other words, what do we see? We see attempts to equate the immensity and lethality of the Russia-Ukraine war, which is going on right now, the attempt to equate it with the Palestinian issue. These are false, misguided, and presumptuous. They misresent the nature, the history, and actually the complexity of Israeli-Palestinian dispute, and ignore and undermine the ongoing Middle East peace process, which, whether it leads anywhere or not, is immaterial. There is something called the peace process, which is supported by the international community. I personally don't think that the peace process is going anywhere, but I like to say that it keeps a lot of people busy. There are a lot of uh, diplomats and uh, all kind of people in government positions in various countries who earn their salaries by their involvement with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And the truth of the matter is, and uh, um, I may be pessimistic or not, that uh, these people make a living out of the uh, Israel-Palestinian uh, conflicts, and I don't think they really want to see it end. And by the way, as far as the Palestinian-Israel conflict is concerned, there's one thing which is very rarely mentioned, except by a colleague of mine named uh, David Vadin, and that is the educational system in the Palestinian area, including the refugee camps. If you take a look at the books that are used and trained Arab kids starting back in 1993, you have, they have raised uh, two generations on hate of Israel. So all the diplomatic um, attempts to resolve the problem are le leading nowhere because you have a basic problem that the Palestinians are unwilling to accept the existence of the state of Israel. So there's an obsession there and it doesn't seem to want to go away. I'll be back after the break. Hi, I'm Steve Miller. And I'm Matt Zucker. Join us for Lighten Up, where we take a look at the week's current events in Israel and from around the Jewish world through a humorous lens. If you've been paying attention during these crazy times, you know that it's a challenge to parody life anymore. 
But join Steve and I as we give it the old college try. Not only is being happy an obligation, but life is just too short to take it all so seriously. So join me, Steve Miller. And me, Matt Zucker. For a lighten up every Monday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5 p.m. Israel, only on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few more words about what's going on in Gaza. And the reason I want to do this is because most of the listeners reading newspapers outside of Israel or even in Israel do not get a picture of what's happening in Gaza. It doesn't get the headlines, but there are things happening in there which are essentially preventing any kind of peace process. I want to speak about a little bit about that because one of the experts in the area is a colleague of mine named David Bedin, and he has specialized on what's happening in Gaza. Back about a year ago, the Jewish News Service confirmed that the United States had asked Israel to work with the UN to rehabilitate Gaza, UNRWA. Yet, the seeming absurdity of a suggestion that Israel should work with UNRWA to rehabilitate Gaza actually defines facts on the ground. Because UNRWA, UNRWA, the UN organization in Gaza, has been taken over completely by Hamas, which is a terrorist organization. Moreover, 82% of the people living in Gaza, which is about 1.7 million persons, now dwell in 11 temporary UN camps established for refugees of the 1948 war. So there's no question in anyone's mind that the attacks which Israel endures from Gaza, especially last year, were orchestrated by Hamas. And Hamas is an affiliate of the Islamic Brotherhood defined by the U.S., Canada, United Kingdom, the European Union, Israel, and Australia as a terrorist organization. In other words, a terrorist organization is running and has control of Gaza. So the, the Hamas connection to the UN is, is understated. For the past 29 years, the UNRWA Teachers Association and the UNRW Workers Association has been cro- controlled by Hamas. Now, the, uh, the European Parliament expressed its concern over the increasing influence of Hamas, and they financed a study of the uh, 2009 
UNRWA union elections. In those elections, this is in 2009, in those elections, 90% of the votes for the UNRWA Teachers Association of Workers Union went to the Hamas slate of candidates. So, in other words, they placed the United Nations economy and the United Nations schools in the hands of Hamas since 2009. Back last year, there was an 11-day Gaza-Israel war in May, and funds flowed to the UN and to the Gaza economy from nations around the world who wanted to address the humanitarian crisis faced by the people of Gaza, which was a real crisis. And they were particularly worried about the plight of children under fire and their education. The, tragically, the one program that Hamas and the UN worked on together during the spring of 2021 was a massive weapons training summer camp. In this camp, Hamas recruited 10,000 children from the age of nine from UN schools to teach them how to fire weapons and missiles in the next round of fighting. In other words, the UN gave money to Hamas to educate the kids, and Hamas simply used the money to educate the kids toward war against Israel. The the Bedin Center for Near East Policy dispatched a TV crew to film the uh, Hamas munitions summer camp, Uh, and they actually produced a film in three languages for parliaments of the leading to the the three leading donors, Germany, the UK, and Sweden. So why will there probably be a next round? The openly stated purpose of UNRWA education, whose school books are published by the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the openly stated purpose remains the right of return by force of arms the Arab villages that existed before 1948 that are now part of Israel. Now, obviously, a United Nations agency does not have to behave this way. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees has successfully helped tens of millions of refugees worldwide rehabilitate their lives. The young UNRWA could have been converted into a similarly normative United Nations agency if it focused on building better lives for the people of Gaza. In other words, the United Nations has helped millions of refugees around the world, and they've done an excellent job. But what happens when it comes to Gaza, the money is... Uh, given to terrorist organizations to educate, if you will, the refugees. And of course, I use the word educate in a very broad sense. So because the UN activities in Gaza has been co-opted by terrorist organizations, Palestinians under the care are relegated to a refugee life for perpetuity. 
raising a fourth and a fifth generation in frustration that they cannot return to the villages that existed before 1948. And as I said, the UN did a terrific job for refugees around the world. When it comes to the Palestinian refugees, the money was poured through terrorist organizations who handles the education and the housing of the Palestinians, and they are doing nothing like other areas, other countries have done to help refugees. They're training them to hate Israel, and they're, they're keeping them in housing that makes them unhappy, so it raises their desire to return to the homes they had before the 1948 war. The leaders in Gaza are duping their own people into believing they can build their lives based on a goal that can never be achieved. So the question has to be asked, what can be done to make sure that these UN donor nations funds will really help the people of, Ga of Gaza? And um, the, uh, they have to, the donor nations have to know what's happening because in a sense, they bear full responsibility because it's their money. Interestingly enough, as a first step in the right direction, U.S. President Joe Biden issued an unprecedented policy statement on June last year to mandate new U.S. policies that condition U.S. aid to the U.N. on a reform and an end to incitement. The fact that Secretary of State Blinken will be required to report to U.S. Congressional Committee prior to the release of funds for the U.N. agency it has to guarantee that the U.N. is taking steps to ensure the content of all educational materials currently taught in U.N. administered schools and summer camps and summer camps is consistent with the values of human rights, dignity, and tolerance, and does not induce incitement. So, uh, the, a lot of studies have been done, and it turns out that education sponsored by the UN in Gaza is far from being an advocate for peace doesn't recognize the state of Israel, and it lords Palestinian terrorists who mass murder Israelis. It comes down to this. Children are taught to hate, and the United Nations for decades and until this very day is part of the problem, not part of the solution. The U.S. has committed itself to force them to change course under the Biden administration. Now, this is in effect for over a year now. I do not know what the results are, but uh, this is something that has to be watched. The UN using money from the donors, including the United States, is sponsoring education in the Gaza area, which is brainwashing uh, Palestinian children to hate Israel and pray and work for its destruction. That's where this money is going at the moment. Whether there'll be any change, who knows? But there certainly has to be something done about. Uh, hopefully, the, when uh, 
organizations like uh, those run by uh, by David Bedin will monitor these things. Maybe some changes will happen. I'll be back after the break. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. This is Shai Bentico, and each week I'll be webcasting to you from Judea, origin of the word Jew, a people besieged and beleaguered in every generation. Nazi Germany's but a memory, but in its place the world invented the phantom Palestinians as this generation's internationally authorized Jew killers. Tune in for a different slant on life in Israel. Phantom Nation, every Monday. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with uh, Jay Shapiro. I want to touch upon a subject. In in other words, I want to give the listeners a heads up about an item that might soon become big news. And that has to do with our relationship between the state of Israel and Jordan as far as the old city of Jerusalem is concerned. For several years now, Jordan has been advancing a campaign to falsely embellish his privileges and holy sites in Jerusalem, including Muslim and Christian. In the Six-Day War, Israel captured the old city, and they gave over the uh, custody of the Temple Mount to the Waqf, which is a, a, a Muslim organization which is run by Jordan, and that turns out to have been a mistake it's because uh, what's happening now is Jordan is seeking to have the walk, not the Israel police, take charge of visits to the Temple Mount by non-Muslims, which essentially will mean blocking almost all Jewish visits to the Temple Mount. Jordan also objects to the term freedom of worship when referring to the Temple Mount because they interpret the phrase as implying that Jews may pray there. Now, Israel has never recognized Jordanian custodianship over any holy sites in Jerusalem. In fact, the opposite is true. Jordan renounced claims to Jerusalem and the West Bank in 1988 in favor of the Palestinians. And Jordan signed a peace treaty with Israel in 1994, which has an article, the ninth article, that specifies that each party will provide freedom of access to places of religious and historical significance. So now, how did Jordan, how does Jordan now deny Israeli sovereignty on the Temple Mount. 
Now, they did it by a very interesting thing. They exaggerated the rest of Article 9. Article 9, Paragraph 2 of the Israel-Jordan Treaty of Peace says that, and I quote, in this regard, regarding freedom of access to places of religious and historical significance, in accordance with the Washington Declaration, Israel respects the present special role of the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan in Muslim holy shrines in Jerusalem. And the article adds that when negotiations on a permanent status will take place, Israel will give high priority to the Jordanian historical role in these shrines. Now, in other words, recognition was afforded to Jordan's special role in Muslim holy shrines in Jerusalem, not custodianship over Muslim and Christian holy sites in Jerusalem, and not control the Temple Mount Plaza, neither directly nor through the Waqf. We, by the way, the that organization, the, the Waqf, W-A-K-F, purposely was not mentioned in the Israel-Jordan Peace Treaty. So even Jordan's special role in Muslim holy sites in Jerusalem was predicated on another part of the Article 9 of the Peace Agreement, which says the parties will act together to promote interfaith relations among the three monotheistic religions with the aim of working towards religious understanding, moral commitment, freedom of religious worship, and tolerance and peace. Now, the, the, uh, the, these are all nice statements, and uh, the, the question is, uh, are, the, are the parties keeping the agreement? Now, what has the Waq and Islamic movement done on the old city and on the Temple Mount. First of all, they've greatly restricted visitation rights for all non-Muslims. It's only a few hours a week and only through one Temple Mount gate. They hijacked the pulpits in the mosque on the mount to regularly preach hatred and violence against Israel. This is on the Temple Mount in the heart of Jerusalem, our capital. They have allowed ISIS, Hamas, Islamic movement, and Turkish flags even to fly on the mount in violation of all understandings as well as blood-curdling banners with calls to annihilate Israel and the Jewish people. Right here in Jerusalem, they're raising these anti-Jewish and anti-Israel banners. They've attacked Jewish visitors to the mount, They've attacked Jewish worshipers at the Western Mall, which is below the mound, and they've attacked Jewish worshipers on their way to the Western Wall. And they, by the way, they've, it's interesting, they've also attacked Emiratis and Bahrainis praying in Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is on the Temple Mount. Why did they attack these people? Because ostensibly because those countries signed the so-called Abraham Accord peace treaties. So they've attacked these Emiratis and Bahrainis who have come to Jerusalem to pray on the Temple Mount. And Palestinian terrorists have even smuggled machine guns onto the Temple Mount and killed police guarding the gates of the mound. 
they launched their attacks from within the Temple Mount, and they fled into the shrines on the mound so the police could not come after them. And there are tens of thousands of boulders and rocks stockpiled by Arabs on the Temple Mount under full view of block officials for periodic planned rock-throwing violence, including repeated attacks over this past month. Perhaps worst of all, the WAF has conducted vast illegal construction projects on the mound and beneath it, destroying centuries of Jewish archaeological treasures. So the uh, it, it, the the essentially the Jordanians have overstated their rightful custodianship in Jerusalem, which amounts to an assault on Israel's rights in Jerusalem. For, for example, when the, the Canadian foreign minister visited Jordan last July, he restated Canada's recognition of Jordan's custodianship over Muslim and Christian holy sites in Jerusalem and conveyed Canada's appreciation of Jordan's constructive efforts and recognition of the key role it plays toward a comprehensive, just and lasting peace for the Palestinian and Israeli peoples. That's his wording. By the way, the, the office, uh, the Canadian office, partially corrected his statement by removing reference to Christian holy sites, but they kept the term custodianship. Even Washington occasionally has slipped in its statements about Jordanian custodianship in Jerusalem. Even though Washington knows full well there is no such thing in any Israeli Jordan or U.S. Jordan agreements, there is no Jordanian custodianship in Jerusalem. Any kind of custodianship would impinge on Israeli claims of sovereignty in United Jerusalem. United Jerusalem includes the Old City and it includes the Temple Mount. And certainly if that suggests Israeli relinquishment of security control over the mound, and security, beside all the issues of sovereignty, security control is really important. So the Hashemite kingdom, it may be an important partner for Israel in maintaining stability along Israel's uh, eastern border, which is Israel's longest border goes all the way up from Syria all the way down to a lot. And uh, Jordan is an ally of Israel in the fight against Iranians, Iranian ambitions. And by the way, Israel today, today provides almost all of Jordan's water and energy needs. But the King Abdullah is proving to be an enemy in the struggle of Jerusalem. He's willing to employ falsifications, radical rhetoric, and shameless diplomatic guile to undermine his Jewish rights, Israeli rights, at the holiest place on earth to the Jewish people. So that is the situation now. We have peace with Jordan, but the Jordanian king is starting to, I don't know, I don't know what, is, what is prompting him, Maybe it's because a large part of the population in Jordan is Palestinian, and he want to he wants to butter up that that population so they don't revolt against him. By the way, I've been to Jordan twice. 
I've been to Amman, the capital, and the, the king's palace is really well guarded. It's really something to see. And the guards, by the way, are Bedouin. The, the king of Jordan actually is a Bedouin. They come from the Arabian uh, Peninsula, and the, they have to make sure that the people who guard the king and the palace are loyal to the king, so they only rely on Bedouin. So I guess what's happening now is the king is making all kind of noises about uh, control over Jerusalem because he wants to keep the Palestinian people in his, uh, in his country happy. Who knows? Anyhow, I, I want to share this with the listeners because it doesn't get the headlines. Until next week, take care of yourselves. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.